bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. This is Britta Wedling, editor-in-chief of Bits and Pretzels. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm speaking to Stuart Butterfield, the founder and CEO of Slack, who just closed, which is certainly this year's mega exit in tech, with selling the popular communication platform to Salesforce for a stunning $27.7 billion. We've talked briefly before Stuart decided to wade deeper into the enterprise software world with a deal that he described as the most strategic combination in the history of software in a personal statement after the announcement. And in our conversation that happened during our Bits and Pretzels networking week, the serial entrepreneur shares the story behind that great success. From the early days of building Slack to being at the forefront of the global remote work experiment today that shows no sign of ending anytime soon as Europe struggles to contain the second wave of COVID-19. And Stuart also talks about his personal learnings from his 15 plus years in tech, including what's necessary to navigate the ups and downs of scaling a company and continuously pushing your firm as well as yourself to new beginnings. Welcome, Stuart Butterfield. Hello, thank you for having me. It's really great to have you here. I just I mentioned that you saw a lot of growth during the current pandemic. Uh, and something that you tweeted a lot about on, on Twitter, obviously, was that user growth was climbing from 10 million to over 12 million users uh, in just a couple of days, couple of hours, uh, just a week. So, so talk about how you actually, what you actually did to, to meet that demand, um, you know, from a technical perspective. Sure. Um, I'm not sure how... how uh, deep it'll get technically, but uh, we had spent a huge amount of time in the year prior um, investing in uh, kind of automated scaling technologies. And Slack sometimes seems like it's it's simple to people. Um, I, I'm not sure if I have the number exactly right for today, uh, but at peak, we processed 65 million events a second. Um, wow. So it's big, uh, you know, from the perspective of one individual team, you might have five people or 10 people, or, you know, some of our larger customers have hundreds of thousands. Um, but the activity doesn't seem that great, but it's the messages sent, it's the API calls, it's people coming online and offline, files uploaded, and, and so on. Um, and we started development on Slack, let's see, the very beginning of 2013. So seven and three quarters years ago. Um, and since then, I think we've probably done two or three major re-architectures, uh, mostly moving from a monolithic app, as you might expect, to more of a services-based approach. And I think we're still, uh, a lot of that work is ongoing. Um, but one of the big areas of effort was automating scaling. And that means automatic provisioning of new servers on demand um, and kind of matching of the different components because there's, you know, caching layers and application layers and there's backend. Um, so uh, I felt very lucky, I think, that uh, both um, front end and, and back end, we had made some really big changes over the kind of the year prior that put us in a, in a good position. So we didn't, we had, I think in March, um, which, The, where the peak of the um, the surge was, um, it was either five nines of uptime or 100% uptime. 
Wow, it's, that's impressive. So obviously you are kind of at the forefront of the future of work, right? And everybody wants to figure out how to deal with the current situation, being agile, being flexible uh, as a company. And I think that's the question that even some people in the startup audience ask themselves. So, so talk about how you actually made this work within Slack, scaling fast, sending people into the home office, running a successful operation. So, so share some of your knowledge here. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it might not be surprising that we rely on Slack, the tool at Slack, the company very extensively. Um, we're 20, 25 or 2,600 employees now. I'm not sure exactly. And pre-pandemic, we had 16 offices in 10 different countries. So globally distributed team. And um, since then, we've had to change the way we operate completely. Um The interesting statistic there is that now 20% of our employees started post-pandemic. So they had a very different experience um, than others on the way in because uh, historically we flew everyone to San Francisco for a week. They would all meet each other. They would meet um, other members of their team. They would kind of get a, a sense of the spirit in the community. Um, and since then, everyone's starting remotely. They get their laptop sent to them. We had to build a whole bunch of different systems for that. But the one thing that's constant is uh, the use of channels inside of Slack. And um, for probably most people in the audience, I think Slack is almost uh, instantly familiar. Like It doesn't require any explanation. But there's many people in the world who have never used Slack before. And often... Um, You know, they'll think like, why would I switch off of email or why is it better than WhatsApp or something like that? And the way we typically explain it is, imagine you create a channel for everything that's happening across the company. So it's every project, every initiative, every team, every office location, business unit, um, security incident, every customer you have. Once you have that, everyone knows where to go to ask their question. Everyone knows where to give their update. Everyone knows where to go to get caught up on something. So I actually have the first hire that I did during the pandemic, our new chief people officer, uh, Nadia Rawlinson, who, you know, interesting side note, is the first executive we hired outside of San Francisco. She lives in, in Chicago. But Nadia will join um, a lot of these channels and have this extensive history, um, both for her team, for my executive team, for the senior leadership team, but just across the company. And she'll be able to search all that history and you know, see the origin of decisions, but also just scroll up and see what topics are important to people today, but also this kind of social dynamics and expectations. So the idea there is that uh, organizations have to put less effort into communication to achieve a given amount of alignment. And if that's true, then I think there is the opportunity to be much more agile because um, agility comes from maintaining that alignment through change. And if it's uh, I mean, a lot of effort or if it's very expensive to get aligned in the first place, then you can't really be very agile. Right. You mentioned that you brought in a new chief people officer um, and many people ask themselves as well in this time, you know, of, of crisis, you know, having part of the team at home, part of the team in the office, having your new uh, chief uh, people officer in, in uh, not in, at, at, in San Francisco. How do you lead in, in such a crisis? What's important, like, you know, for leaders to, to navigate this circumstances, these many uncertainties that are like basically everywhere? Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. So I'm not sure if I have one piece of advice, uh, maybe other than the same thing, which is true in normal times and something which, to be totally candid, I'm not as good as, as I should be, which is repeating yourself. Um, there's a saying I like, which is leaders remind people what's important. 
And um, I think in normal times, people need a lot of reminding. It's, you know, you can get so wrapped up in the details of some task, it's hard to remember the, the big picture. But in this environment, I think it's especially hard because there's so many uh, challenges and they're not evenly distributed. So right. I, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I'd say a third of our employees and, and a third of um, employees at, at um, companies that I'm friendly with and CEOs I've talked to are you know, basically the same or in a, even a better position than they were pre-pandemic. They don't have to commute. They like the flexibility. They get to spend right. more time with their family or, uh, you know, more time with their significant other. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, there's people who are very unhappy and having a, and a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. If you have young children and there's no childcare, that's obviously an enormous challenge. Um, people who have small apartments in the city and now that they have to stay home all day, wish they lived out in the countryside. So then there's a group of people who are kind of in the middle. So one of the challenges I think is, is um, figuring out how to make it work when right. employees are in such different circumstances. Yeah, interesting. You know, and, and you know, you are kind of uh, an exceptional uh, founder because this is not the first company that you started. Uh, the first one was obviously Flickr uh, that you started with your wife, uh, Katharina Fake, um, mm-hmm. which is also an interesting uh, thing. And I think, you know, many entrepreneurs ask themselves, what's important when you want, want to start a business? You know, talk about and share some of your best practices from, from your experience of having started two companies already, two successful companies in, in tech. Um, it's, it's tough. Let me be totally honest. I don't know if the advice is any good because, uh, you learn different things in different circumstances and there is a huge element of luck and timing and all that. Um, but, uh, one thing I learned pretty, pretty much the hard way, um, is that you as a founder really have to believe. And if you don't believe, it's not possible to have it work. And it sounds a little bit hokey or, or um, trite, you know, the, I can't remember what the saying is exactly, something like whether you think you can or think you can't, you're probably right. Meaning um, if you don't believe you can do it, then that kind of takes away the opportunity to actually do it. And there was a moment um Between Flickr and Slack, we a lot of the people who um, uh, the original team from from Flickr uh, started a new company to build a web-based massively multiplayer game, which incidentally was what we were trying to do when we made Flickr as well. And um, we worked on it for three and a half years, and we had a very successful kind of beta program. But it uh, we're never able to retain users for long enough, or, or not retain enough of them. So pe- people who loved the game loved it very passionately, but a little bit like a, you know, a very unique uh, indie band or a very strong cheese or something like that. Um, <laughs> it's a very particular taste. Yeah. And and um, there was one, one night I was trying to fall asleep and um, we'd been through this period where we Or it was always like one more thing. Well, you know, what, this is the idea that will uh, make it work. Or if we can make this change, um, you know, we can finally start to see the, the traction. But uh, I realized that I just didn't, I didn't think it was possible anymore. And instantly, as soon as I felt like that, um, I knew that it just wasn't possible. It doesn't really matter. You know, no other factors come into play at that point. Because for anything to work, for anything to succeed, to, you know, to ever get people to, work together um, requires just such an incredible injection of will. And, right. and um, uh, if you can't do that, you can't, you can't make it work. So uh, the other, only other thing I would say is um, 
you can't think theoretically that this thing that you're working on is a good business idea. You have to really believe that there's enormous benefit to actual customers. Um, and one of the fortunate things about working on Slack is we use it ourselves. You know, I, I use Slack maybe more than any other individual human in the world, uh, which makes it a lot easier. So if you're, if you know, if we made payroll software or something like that, we could work on it for 20 years and never once actually run payroll ourselves. So that's a, that's a little bit of luck, but obviously if you can at least put yourself into the seat as a customer, then you have a much better chance to imagine something that will work for them. And I also wanted to talk to you about something that, you know, was, was difficult uh, for you uh, guys to, to follow. You know, after you sold Flickr to, to Yahoo, you know, the platform was declining. Um, how did you deal with this situation? You know, it was your baby, it was sold to Yahoo, obviously, mm. and Yahoo didn't care, which it did in several cases. Unfortunately, <laughs> it was not the only, <laughs> Flickr was not the only example of that. But how do you deal with this kind of setbacks? You know, any advice you, you, you can share with our audience here? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, whether it's that or the You know, I, I, I spoke about shutting down the game, which was called Glitch. Um, your own psychology is very important. And um, going into it, I don't know that people really recognize the amount of risk you're taking as a founder, not necessarily economically, because um, unless you're using only your, your own money, there's, you know, you won't necessarily lose money on it. But... Um, in the one case, the, the one that you mentioned, um, we had all these ambitions for Flickr. Right. And I don't think it was that Yahoo didn't care. It was that Yahoo had stopped growing. And when the pie isn't getting bigger, um, there's a very strong incentive for people to battle about their piece of the pie. So right. we had the whole executive team kind of in combat with one another. Um, and that was the focus rather than trying to make customers happier, you know, or, right. or innovating mm -hmm. or, or anything like that, um, which made it very difficult for us to get anything done. Um, so that's frustrating and it feels like, you know, we could have done it, but we were being prevented or something like that. On the other hand, when we shut down Glitch, um, no one to blame but ourselves. And, you know, for me, no one to blame but myself. And uh, it's tough, you know, like the, uh, it's humiliating. Right. And, you know, there's, it's not just like the, you know, making claims to your friends or to the press that this is going to be very successful and um, raising money from investors. Right. But more than anything else, it's hiring all those people uh, and selling them on this idea and, and this ambition and then having to tell them that they don't have a job anymore. Um, so <laughs> this probably wasn't the answer that you're looking for. I'm not sure if it's how, how you deal with it. Um, but the one thing that, uh, that we took away from the shutdown of Glitch was... Um, do it when you still have a choice um, because we had, you know, enough money left over that we could shut it down in a, in a responsible way, make sure we take care of people, um, give them generous severance, help people find jobs, but also we um, offered customers their money back or um, uh, we could keep it or we could donate it to charity. We uh, took all of the assets that were created in the game, all the art and animations and music and made them either public domain. So no copyright or uh, creative commons, And uh, we put up a website that said hire a genius and we put everyone's resume and portfolio and we wrote reference letters and all of that goodwill that we got from that, I think really um, helped in the early days of Flickr. We, you know, we 
keeping a, a good reputation and being good to people, even when you're going through a, a pretty sucky time, right. uh, it's essential. <laughs> yeah. So, so coming to the current situation of, of Slack, which is obviously a situation where your company grew, but also where your company is kind of threatened by big competitors and you just filed a complaint against Microsoft with the European Commission uh, for anti-competitive behavior. Uh, what are you trying to achieve there? Um, fair and free competition. So it's a little bit... Um, Uh, there's some nuance here. So we're, we've been competing with Microsoft for 15 or 16 quarters, you know, three, more than three and a half years. Um, and uh, almost our whole business has grown up in that time. And we're still adding new large enterprise customers um, all around the world and in all different industries and financial services and healthcare and media, the retail. Um, but uh, for almost our whole existence, Uh, Microsoft, I think, has recognized that over time, people's attention is moving away from email and towards channel-based messaging platforms. And that's a real threat to them because I think a lot of their um, their current position in the market is based on exchange, outlook, and that as infrastructure that um, uh, organizations then build on to add more Microsoft tools. So, you know, Active Directory for provisioning. Obviously, you know, tools like Word and, and Excel and PowerPoint are very popular and people would buy them, but the, right. that doesn't support the whole uh, system. Mm -hmm. It's the communication layer that, that is the most fundamental. So I think they have perceived this as an existential threat and they've really been very aggressive in, um, in trying to kill us. And so the I'm happy that they haven't been successful. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, we're feeling in a position where we're feeling great about the business, especially right. coming out of the pandemic. We yeah. uh, the rate of new customer ads is up 60% versus a year ago. Right. Um, but there's thousands of customers and Microsoft's out there telling them, you don't need Slack. You don't need to try it. We're, we've given you teams for free. Right. And I think that uh, obviously impedes our growth, but it also sets a bad precedent. Uh, in looking at the law and the regulation, we're very confident that it's illegal, anti-competitive behavior. We haven't heard back from the commission yet, but we are, are pretty uh, confident that they will decide to pursue the investigation and eventually find in, in our favor. I think it's something that's kind of interesting because you see that all over tech right now that the pandemic has been really a bonanza for the big tech companies, right? But many smaller companies struggling. How do you feel about that balance between these big tech companies obviously being a layer for innovation at, at some point, but also can become an inhibitor for growth? What, what do you think is the situation for, for startups or younger companies right now? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's maybe in, in some ways actually better than it was, let's say three or four years ago because of the heightened interest by regulators. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, um, I think businesses should be allowed to grow and, and, and become large and be successful. Uh, so that's not in itself a problem. Um, but we also want to ensure that there's innovation and, and competition. And I think if you look back like three years ago, a lot of venture capitalists, if you were looking at something in the social world, would say, ah, how does Facebook not kill you? Um, and then, of course, there's how does Google not kill you? And how does Microsoft not kill you? And how does Amazon not kill you? Um, so it was tougher for ideas to get traction because of the overhang of that threat. Right. Now, I think, um, you know, a company like Google is in a very difficult position trying to acquire anyone because of uh, antitrust and regulatory concerns. The, the pressure is up right. a little bit. And I think that will create more uh, of an opportunity. And of course, you want to find a balance. There's no reason to put 
you don't want to put those companies out of business and they provide valuable services. But you do want to ensure that there is opportunity for continued innovation, just like there was. And my favorite example is uh, Microsoft in 1977 when they were still based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So if you Google Microsoft 70s Albuquerque or something like that, you'll see a picture of the team. And they're like a bunch of hippies and they're in 70s clothes. I think there's 15 employees. Meanwhile, IBM is the biggest and most powerful right. company in the world by yeah. a huge margin. And just five years later, they had totally um, uh, aced them. Like they, they had stolen the future of the technology world from IBM. So uh, we need that kind of stuff to continue to happen. So is it like the time of opportunity now for, for uh, smaller companies and startups and entrepreneurs, um, you know, which of many of them I know audience, or is it like getting tight in the markets? No, I think it is still, I mean, every, like, God, when we, when we started um, the game that predated Flickr, so it was called Game Never Ending, this is 2002, um, I don't even know the factor by which technology has gotten cheaper, but probably... 10,000 times cheaper if you're looking on a on a like per gigabyte uh, of server storage if you're looking at bandwidth if you're looking at CPU costs um, not to mention the enormous layers of new open source technology that that solve a lot of the problems that we had to solve ourselves 20 years ago right. um, so that makes it much easier to get started in one sense there's also uh, the audience is is 10 times bigger, you know, then the potential market is are all much larger, the number of talented people who have experience working in these areas is much greater than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, but it's easier for everyone. So that's not a, an advantage for any given startup. Uh, I think the, the bigger companies definitely put some pressure on, but here's one thing to think about. Um, people get really... Uh, concrete about the idea of what a company is or, or what it's for, which is, I think, why Microsoft wasn't ever able to compete with Google in search and Google wasn't ever able to compete in Facebook with, with social networks. If Apple uh, launched a vodka brand, I don't think it would do any better than, than anyone else. It's just not what it's for. Um, and that means that if it's a new idea, you, you actually have a little bit of, a, of an advantage, just the way that Google had an advantage versus Microsoft. If you're the smaller competitor that has real traction with customers, same reason that Facebook had an advantage versus Google, um, and same reason that despite the fact that Facebook exists, other new, you know, Snapchat emerged and TikTok emerged and, and other um, services and, and Twitter is still not dead. So there's room right. for, for all of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is like, on the one hand, it's obviously a challenging time. On the other hand, it's like really an exciting time because we see like so many things growing, so many things changing. How can entrepreneurs take the opportunities that the current situation offers to them to thrive and moving forward? Yeah, it's, uh, I think that the word disruption, obviously overused and, and kind of, um, I don't even know, it feels like a little bit sleazy or something like that or, or, right. or silly. But um, the thing to think about, there is a lot of disruption happening right now, just the disruption of having to uh, work from home for people who typically would work in an office and, and many other things. And anytime there's that kind of change, anytime the equilibrium is disturbed, there's new opportunities. And given how much change there is right now, um, that means there are, are a lot more opportunities. Um, I think people have to be realistic about what, those opportunities are. So if I said, I'm going to start a search engine to compete with Google, then It's probably not happening. you should not yeah. give, invest in my company. Um, but is Google the last thing that was ever going to happen? No. I mean, we're going to, human beings are hopefully going to be around for another 
couple hundred thousand years or something like that, uh, millions of years, tens of millions of years. So um, most of the things that are going to happen have not happened yet. I think we're really in the infant stages of um, the impact of this kind of technology. You know, this has totally changed the world in the last 10 years, but it's not done. You know, it, any given part might seem uh, in stasis for a little while um, while something else is changing over here. But the, in aggregate, the amount of change is overwhelming. What do you think, what, what entrepreneurial skills are needed in this times of constant change, of current uncertainties? I think there's really just one fundamental skill to being an entrepreneur, and it's uh, more in demand now than normal, but I think it's always there, which is storytelling. And I don't think that's what people think of, but mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people admire Elon Musk as, a, as an entrepreneur and think it's because he's such a smart engineer. But think about Tesla as a company. I mean, what a terrible business to, to start. I mean, it's so it's capital intensive. It's heavily right. regulated in the U S at least the distribution has all of these laws where the companies can't sell their cars directly. They have to go through dealerships. Um, there's a huge amount of time between the initiation of the business and actually being able to sell a product. I could go on. Um, what made it successful? Yes. The engineering is great, but You had to tell a story that would work for the regulators and to tell a story that worked for the press and to tell a story that worked for investors and analysts, tell a story that allowed you to attract first rate talent um, and kind of develop this vision and get people uh, aligned around it. Um, and that is the fundamental story because you, you I'm sorry, the fundamental skill because you, those stories matter to employees, to customers, to the press, to investors. Um, and if you're not able to tell uh, a story that, that attracts people, that compels people or that it inspires people, uh, it's very, very difficult. And also smoking pot in front of a running camera on YouTube. Yes. That's probably a different story. Yeah. Don't, don't emulate Elon, to be clear. I'm not, uh, other than the storytelling abilities. <laughs> He has many skills. That's, that's, that's for sure. So, so talk about what's next for, for Slack and what technologies you are building on new tools you are developing for us. You know, since everybody knows that we have to continue to work out of home. So, so talk about that. Yeah. So I think three areas. So one is um, Slack Connect, which is just the ability for two or more organizations who use Slack to be able to create channels that are shared between them and send messages across. Um, it's incredibly powerful for us on, on the business side. Uh, we've added 8,000 new customers last quarter and a thousand of them um, came directly from, from Slack Connect. Um, and that was in only six weeks of the quarter. So I, I think that will continue to have a big impact for us as a business, but it'll also have a big impact for customers because it creates a whole bunch of things that, that aren't really possible today, which is essentially small private networks made up of individuals um, in, across multiple organizations um, or more complex connections between those multiple organizations. The bottom line for the enterprise side is you get improved collaboration, you know, the, the kind of way of working that comes from a channel-based messaging platform on the one hand, but you also get a huge step forward in compliance and security because uh, communication isn't happening out of band and that makes a big difference. So uh, that's one. Um, I don't think this is out yet, but it's also not that secret. Um, you'll be able to, to send direct messages with any other Slack user, uh, but with uh, a layer of security and, and permission on top of it. Uh, and just briefly, the other two, um, kind of a renewed uh, activity in the platform and some fundamental kind of um, 
new capabilities. You know, we, the Slack platform has been tremendously successful. There's thousands of apps in the app directory, but there's also 700,000 custom integrations developed by customers that are in active use today. So it's just kind of a mind-boggling amount of activity there. Um, and after years of um, working on it and, and supporting it and learning from customers, I think we have some new ideas about how to really um, create a, a huge step up in the degree of, of uh, utility people can get out of the platform. And then the last one, this is a little bit more vague, although stay tuned to our user conference in two weeks, I think, uh, uh, Frontiers it's called. Um, one of the things that's really been a challenge for us as a company and what we've heard from customers as well is all the stuff that has to happen synchronously uh, in, in this distributed work setup um, everyone's exhausted at the end of the day. Everyone spent hours and hours and hours on, on video calls. And some right. of those should be synchronous. You should get together a group of five or eight or 20 people even um, at the same time to have a, a live conversation. Many of them don't have to be synchronous. So what are some future-looking um, asynchronous uses of voice and video that could allow you to take some of those things that today must be meetings and um, and make them something that happens more asynchronously? And that's a little bit vague and hand-wavy, but essentially you can look at the capabilities we have as consumers, you know, um, things like Instagram stories or, or video messages, voice messaging, that's, that's very prevalent, okay. um, and see how that could work in the enterprise. You want to know what we look forward uh, to here at Bits and Pretzels? Yes. <laughs> Next year, Bye. Oktoberfest, obviously. We hope that we oh. now find the time to, to meet uh, again uh, for, for a beer or for two. And hopefully you can, you can join us uh, as well physically. It would be great to you know, connect physically and have a beer yeah, or two. I'd, I'd love to be back. Um, that is, of course, my favorite time of year to visit. Do you, do you have a Bavarian attire? Uh, no. Okay, so we have to get you a Bavarian attire. It was it was great to talk to you, uh, Stuart. Many thanks uh, for, for joining us uh, today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode again. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple or wherever you're listening. See you next week.